Let's read together 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. 2 Kings 18, verses 1 through 8. Now listen to the word of God. Now it came about in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. Amen. Now, I want to spend a few weeks talking to you about King Hezekiah, because Hezekiah, as I said a moment ago, is probably one of the more significant kings that uh, we need to know. Now, of course, the Bible says that all that God has written is for our instruction. So that means the good kings and the bad kings. Uh, some of them are for our example. Some of them are for our negative example. But Hezekiah, uh, young children, he is a good guy, okay? He is a king that you need to get to know. And, uh, but he's not a perfect king, all right? So let's put that out there. And now let me say, I think by way of application right here in the introduction, I think the way that the Bible treats Hezekiah, and in general treats really all the significant figures of the Old Testament and New Testament, really should inform the way we should look at history ourselves. And that is, we live in an age where a lot of people are trying to tear history down. They're trying to tear down the past as though the past has nothing to teach us whatsoever. Now beware of people like that who only want to destroy because they usually have nothing good to replace it with. People who think they can reinvent the wheel and reinvent the world are, are dangerous people. People who have no regard for their mothers and fathers and what God has done by way of common and special grace, those are dangerous people. And uh, you need to be aware of them. You need to be aware of them this week on Tuesday. Um, the Bible says, honor your father and your mother. But having said that, the Bible also is very open-eyed about the sins of even the best of men. And I think those are the ways that we need to steer our own ship when we deal with the past and with history. We are to honor our mothers and fathers, especially those who show us how to walk in Christ. As Paul said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. 
However, we also need to uh, keep in mind that the best of men are men at best, and that all men have feet of clay. And there's only one Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ought to always look to him for salvation. Isn't it interesting that the very people who want to tear down history often put these messianic figures in front of us and say if we don't vote for them, that then everything is going to go to a very bad place. And that politics has become actually more messianic, I think, because we don't have a biblical view of looking at the past. And, and everything is revolutionary now. And we need to be aware of that. So the Bible is always clear that we should look at, at godly men and women in our Bible and treat them as heroes. I was once having lunch with somebody, I won't name his name, but he'd be well known to most of you here if I did. And he said to me, I don't think we should have heroes. And I gently pushed back and said, I think that's exactly what we need. I said, the Bible has heroes. The book of Hebrews gives us a list of heroes. That means that the Holy Spirit has told us that they, these people are godly men. Now, we know reading, the, when you actually read the stories about them in the Old Testament, we know that the people named in the book of Hebrews are not perfect men. We know that Noah got drunk. We know that Moses, you know, got angry and smote the rock when he should have spoken to it. He had a trouble with anger. He killed an Egyptian, you know, in his anger. Uh, these things are not hidden to us. We know all about David and what happened with him and Bathsheba. But nevertheless, uh, in spite of that, the scriptures still say that these are people that, insofar as they follow Jesus Christ, are to be emulated. And that's true of Hezekiah. And so I want to start there because in these first eight verses, we see no, what, hint. In, this, in these first eight verses, we see no hint of censorship by God, do we? God, basically, when he summarizes and introduces Hezekiah to us, he says he's a good king, he followed the Lord, he, he was obedient, and, and in some ways, he, he, we're going to see here in a minute, he exceeded David. He exceeded some of the kings in certain ways uh, of the past. Now, is Hezekiah without fault? No. There's at least two and possibly three occasions in the history that we see Hezekiah fall short. I think we, we see him fall short uh, early in his reign. I see, think he made a, a tragic mistake at the end of his reign. In the beginning of his reign, he compromises and tries to pay off Assyria. I think that was a mistake. He should have trusted in the Lord. But even Hezekiah later relents and repents of that, I think. You see evidence of it later when uh, the, the, uh, the foreigners are brought to the very gates of Jerusalem. I think he learned his lesson, and he did trust in the Lord, and the Lord delivered. And then we see he gave, he gave a, a tour of all the treasures of Judah to the Babylonians. I think that was a mistake, clearly, because they, the emissaries of Babylon went home and said, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, guess what? They're loaded over there. <laughs> you take that nation, and you'll get a lot of good stuff. So that clearly was a mistake uh, of Hezekiah to show those cards to the Babylonians. But what does the immediate text in front of us say as it introduces Hezekiah? It tells us here that in verse 3, he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. 
Do you see how the Bible, how God, the Holy Spirit, in writing the Bible, treats history in the Bible? That this is a good man, a good king. He will not be without flaws, however. That's the way I think we need to approach our own culture and history. If, if we do nothing but tear down the past for the sins of our past, then we have nothing left. And that's the way some people want it. But that's a, that is a foolish mistake. That's a fool's errand to do that. We should look and, at, at both the good and the bad. And where there's bad, we look to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of the bad. And where there's good, we seek to emulate it. That's a biblical way of approaching life. So let's take this in three parts today. Three parts, verses 1 through 3, we see that Hezekiah is noted as a godly young king. Verses 1 through 3, Hezekiah is a godly young king. Number 2, from verse 4, Hezekiah attacks idolatry. The second thing that the Holy Spirit gives us uh, when he summarizes the life of Hezekiah, is he says, this is the king that attacked idolatry. And then thirdly, verses 5 through 8, Hezekiah was obedient and was given victory. Hezekiah was obedient to God, and he was given victory by God in verses 5 through 8. Those are our three points here for our lesson this morning. So let's talk about point number one, verses 1 through 3. Hezekiah, a godly young king. Now look at verse 1 in your Bible. Now it came about in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. Now notice here several things. And it, it is wonderful when you slow down and you pay attention to some of the details here of the text. Notice here that in verse 1, the historian gives you some very important little pieces of information that if you're just kind of speed reading at home through your Bible so you can cross off your McShane calendar, you're going to miss some stuff here. And what, it, what does he note there in the very opening sentence of this chapter? He says, it came about in the third year of Hosea. Now, what is so significant about the third year of Hosea? Well, you have to go back a chapter to chapter 17 in verse 6, because this will tell you the context in which Hezekiah reigns. Because it is said in 2 Kings 17, verse 6, in the ninth year of Hosea, that is, that is to say, Hezekiah became king in the third year of Hosea, six years before this event. It says here in verse 6, The king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile to, to, and settled them in, in foreign places. Now, what is the significance of this? In the third year of Hosea, a 25-year-old is made king in Judah. Hosea is the king in northern Israel. So in the third year that Hosea was king, you have Ahaz king. Two new kings. And the king in the south, in Judah, is 25 years old. Now I want you to think with me for a moment. Our constitution forbids it, but let's just imagine for a second that we 
wake up Wednesday morning, and I know he's, the presidency's not on the ballot uh, this week, but imagine we elect a 25-year-old to the executive office of the United States of America. That would sober us up, wouldn't it? It sobered up America. You remember, we forget. You know, we look back on Kennedy and, you know, um, but, you know, America woke up to a 39-year-old. And even back then, if those of you who watched Backstairs at the White House, you remember that series that they had and, and the SWAT and the White House staff privately was saying, he's 39 years old, you know, compared to a lot of the staff that were in their 60s and 70s at the time, they were quite nervous at what seemed like a kid coming into the Oval Office. Imagine 25-year-old. Now, we don't say this to disparage 25-year-olds here, but nevertheless, um, that, that is a tremendous weight of responsibility put on somebody who's three years out of college. Now, add to that that the nation of his own people just north of him is in disarray religiously, economically, and politically. And his own country of Judah is also, though not to the same degree, also a complete mess. Because why? Because his father, Ahaz, was a wicked king. Ahaz was the one who introduced a lot of the idolatry that is right there in the temple. You realize that at this moment in verse 1 that we're reading, the temple is essentially closed for business. The temple is essentially closed. Now, you have to go over to Chronicles. We don't have time, but you have to essentially go over to the Second Chronicles to read about some of that, the reopening of the temple. So Hezekiah, in the third year of Hosea, becomes king. He's only 25 years old. He has the weight of this responsibility, and he has the most significant empire in the region bearing down on the ten northern tribes just north of him. He indeed is, in fact, installed as king, anointed as king, six years prior to the Assyrian captivity. Now, how many 20-something-year-olds do we have in here? You don't have to raise your hand. How many teenagers within six years will be in your 20s? We got more of those, don't we? Are you doing what's right in the sight of the Lord now? You know, the Bible says we don't know what a day may bring. Can you imagine? We don't know what six years may bring. Hosea is installed six years before one of the most significant events in the Bible takes place. That the people of God are sacked and driven into exile. In six years, we don't know what the world may look like. It may look very different geopolitically. Are you ready? Are you getting ready? Say, Pastor, how do I get ready for that which I don't even know is coming? You get ready by doing what Hezekiah is doing. You get ready by fearing the Lord and obeying the Lord now in the things that God has given you to do now. The Apostle Paul said to Timothy, don't let anyone look down on your youthfulness. So young people, show yourselves to be an example of godliness. The Apostle Paul says now in your speech, in your words, in your conduct, and this applies for older adults. Let's not be shamed by the youthful example of others. Have those of you, have you who are older, have you lost some of your former fervor? Uh, have you lost your first love? Have you made peace with the world, with apostasy? 
Are you okay with the temple being filled with Ahaz's idolatry? Have you just said, well, you know, I've done my share. And, and, and uh, I'm going to give it to somebody else. Listen, Daniel was in his 80s, and he's still fasting and praying. Even if you can't do anything else, you can always give yourself to prayer, can't you? You know, I repeat this all the time in the nursing homes because people in the nursing home are wondering, well, what does God want me to do now? You know, I can't even get to public worship any, any longer. And I always tell them, you know, God sovereignly has you even in a nursing home. And if you cannot do anything else, as though prayer was but a little thing, you can give yourself to, to prayer, to the ministry of prayer. We know that prayer moves mountains. Um, there's no telling, you know, we, we only see with our eyes in this world, but there's no telling what God is going to show us in, in the final judgment day of how people who secretly were praying, people who don't have a big name, they don't have a big ministry, they, they don't have, you know, they're not a social influencer, you know, and, and yet they change the world because of their praying. I remember the story of one of our own missionaries, he got to Uganda, and he and his wife felt called to go to Uganda. This is when we didn't have a mission work in Uganda at the time, and they went over there, and um, his wife even said, if, if uh, <laughs> she said this kind of kiddingly, but she said, even if he, meaning her husband, said no, she was going to go anyway. <laughs> but when they got there, um, little did they realize that um, there was a woman who pulled this uh, kind of curtain-like thing uh, down, a cloth that was covering, and it had the name of the missionary. She had been praying for him to come to Uganda. Now, he had visited before. That's how she even knew of him. But at the time, they just thought it was a one-time visit and didn't think anything else. Now, you know, we, we have a... a we have dozen-plus missionaries in that region now, right? Uh, somewhat in part because one older woman was giving herself to praying, praying that that missionary. We've, we've read about that, haven't we, in, uh, in Scotland. Those of you who have read about the revival in the Hebrides, you all read about that in the 1940s. Two elderly sisters, um, one was crippled, one was blind. And they had a burden for the the spiritual state of the Hebrides. These, the Hebrides are islands off of Scotland's mainland. They're part of Scotland, but they are truly detached. They're islands. And uh, they're remote, to say the least. And, uh, but nevertheless, these two women gave themselves to prayer and uh, prayed themselves a missionary, essentially, an evangelist to come. And God used that man to bring a great change to the Hebrides. We see in the Bible, David was young, wasn't he? And yet he defeated Goliath. God used David. David couldn't understand why it was that Israel was just letting Goliath insult the God, the living God. Finally, uh, he decides to take it upon himself to do this and goes to Saul, tries on Saul's armor, it doesn't work. He said, look, God will be my protector. God has delivered me from the, the, the paw of the lion and of the bear. And here again we see, you know, where David was faithful as a shepherd in the field. Who 
knew. Even David didn't know what the significance of that faithfulness in the field would later be when he would have to contend with Goliath. That's why even if you, you, you don't know what God may have in store for you in years to come, those of you who are young, you ought to study now to be godly and be faithful whatever God's got you to do, even if it's just a little bit. Because that may have a dividend for you later that you don't even realize. The disciples likely were very young men when they were called by Jesus to follow him. Paul likewise began his ministry as a young man. He, of course, calls Timothy. And so we see here that God put a tremendous amount of responsibility on somebody relatively young. And I think there are many ways that we all, young and old alike, can learn from uh, this experience of Hezekiah. I want to show you something else. Look with me at verse 2. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abby. And if you look at Chronicles, they give her her full name, Abigail. The daughter of Zechariah. Now, isn't that interesting? Zechariah's mother was named. Now, some speculate the reason for that. She's Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. Why? Why does the historian note that? Some speculate that the reason is because we know Ahaz was a bad man. Well, how then does Hezekiah become a good man and a good king? And many commentators believe that the reason is, is because of his mother. And so we, we see the benefit that can come. It's been stated by Sinclair Ferguson that the first theologian any child will have is his mother. You mothers play an important role in the training of our covenant children. Timothy had probably an unbelieving father. His father was a Greek, we are told. But he also had a mother, Eunice, and a grandmother named Lois. And these women raised Timothy on the scriptures, Paul tells us. And so we may find um, that many of our mothers have a significant role to play. Don't underestimate, Mom, your role in influencing the future. It has been said commonly, she who rocks the cradle, she whose hand rocks the cradle, rules the world. Now, what other application do we get from this first point about Hezekiah? Simply this. God has raised up another man greater than Hezekiah, Jesus Christ, and he is now our king. He is the king of Israel and Judah and of all the nations of the world. He was acknowledged as king from the time he was born by the Magi. He was anointed for the office by John the Baptist at his baptism. However, he would not take his throne until he had accomplished his work on the cross and resurrection and ascension. And so now, we, in Hezekiah, one of the things we need to see is that that all the blessings and benefits that we see in the person and the work and the reign of Hezekiah are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That God was faithful to David as we sang in Psalm 89 this morning in that he gave David Hezekiah. But that Hezekiah can't ultimately fulfill the promise that God made unto David. We have to look beyond Hezekiah to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is your king who is faithful 
And if Hezekiah can bring blessings for the people of God, how much more does Jesus Christ bring all kinds of blessings to his people by his godly and perfect reign? Hezekiah, as I said, a godly man, a good man, but not a perfect man. But in Jesus Christ, you have a perfect man. In Hezekiah, you have somebody who makes mistakes. In Hezekiah, you have one who says, well, at least there will be peace in my day. Jesus Christ was concerned not just for peace, but also for the future. Not just peace in his own day, but peace, even eternal peace, where there is perfect righteousness in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus Christ was uh, one who far surpasses Hezekiah. I've got to keep moving, though, for the sake of time. Let's look at verse 4. Hezekiah, secondly, attacks idolatry. In this introduction to the kingship of Hezekiah, we see the historian tells us something specifically about Hezekiah as king and his work. And that is, he removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the sons of Israel had burned incense to it. Hezekiah goes after the heart of Israel's problem, which is idolatry. Idolatry is the worship of other gods, or it is the worship of the true God in a wrong way, in a way that God has not prescribed in Scripture. Now, one of the reasons so many so-called solutions in our day to human maladies are so ineffective is that they never get at the root of the issues. Whether you're talking about uh, things such as crime or education or economics, all the solutions often fall short. Why is that? Because at the heart of our maladies is the problem of rebellion against God. It's, it's idolatry is the heart of the issue. And so we, have, we live in a day where the, the idea of theology being um, significant um, is scoffed. Theology in, in certain circles is, is viewed as irrelevant. It's viewed as irrelevant. You know, theology used to be called in, in former uh, centuries the queen of the sciences. The queen of the sciences. Why? Because they said that, that theology, the, the, the discipline of theology, reigns over the disciplines of math and science and languages and the arts and everything else. And so it was queen of the sciences. You know, I was reading an article where it says now the, the religion department, the philosophy department, they're relegated to the backwaters of the university campus. They're viewed as irrelevant today. But Hezekiah knew the very opposite. He knew that the prosperity of God's people as a church and as a nation depended upon the blessing of God. And therefore, it, the removal of idolatry had to be a top priority in his reign. Now, Jesus Christ attacks idolatry as well. How does Christ do this as king? Well, Christ does this, I'll give you three main ways. Number one, he sends the Holy Spirit in regeneration. Idolatry at its heart is found in the human heart. Ever since the fall of Adam, we have been idolaters. We have gone after other gods. What the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit changes the heart and reorients your heart. So that now you no longer serve idols. Now you no longer serve foreign gods, but you serve the true and the living God. 
How did Paul know when he wrote to the church at Thessalonica, he said, he said, I knew your conversion was true, that it was not a spurious conversion. How did, how did he know that? He said, you turned away from foreign gods to the true and living God. He said, I saw it in your life the way you tr turned away. You know, we read in the book of Acts, what does Luke say as the gospel comes into various communities, people were beginning to gather up their magic books and throw them into the fire publicly. What, what were they doing that? Why was there, what was the purpose of that display? It was to demonstrate that they had a new life, a new orientation towards faith in Jesus Christ, and they were willing to give up their past divinations and sorceries and put it on the, in the fire. So regeneration is the first way. Number two, through sanctification and discipleship. Jesus Christ deals with idolatry. Even when we are brought to Christ, that doesn't mean that all the idolatry in our lives is eradicated. There is an ongoing war against idolatry within ourselves and within our churches and within our families and within our culture. And that needs discipleship and training, putting to death the things that rise up against the knowledge of God. Paul says we are destroying every speculation, every idolatrous philosophy and vain thought that rises up against the lordship of Jesus Christ. He says, this is my ministry. I am tearing down fortresses and, uh, and speculations that, that seek to rival the reign of Jesus Christ so that Christ would be all in all. And this, this is a work of not only evangelism, but also of discipleship. And then thirdly, uh, Christ attacks idolatry, one, regeneration, two, discipleship, three, through great commission and evangelism. That, that the Lord Jesus Christ as our king is advancing his kingdom among all the nations, all the ethnic tribes. And he is doing this through the great commission, Matthew 28, 18 and through 20. Jesus Christ is sending out disciples and preaching the gospel and telling people the truth so that they would turn away from their idolatry and turn to serve him, the living God. So we need three things, don't we, then? From these three thoughts, I want to make several applications. Number one, we need revival. If, if regeneration is one of the ways in which God deals with idolatry, then we need the Spirit of God. We need to pray for the Holy Spirit. We need revival, we need discipleship, and we need the Great Commission. And so we need, number one, pray for the Spirit of God. We need you to pray not only in your home, but in the church meeting. We were talking about this in the high school, Sunday school class. Um, I think I shared with you last week, but we were reading again how Dr. McGraw was saying that the corporate prayer meeting is even more important than your private prayer life. Which is, if you think about it, is a really remarkable statement. And if true, the church is, you see the dire trouble the church is in. Because what does modern evangelicalism say? Quiet time, quiet time, quiet time. I mean, how many of us, you know, grew up hearing that? You know, that, that's all you heard sometimes as a student. Quiet time, quiet time, quiet time. It's all about you and your personal devotional life. Now, we're not saying throw your quiet time away. 
but what Dr. McGraw was saying here, there's something more important than your own personal quiet time. That is the corporate gathering of God's people together to pray together and to pray for the Spirit of God to be poured out. Number two, not only pray for the Spirit, but secondly, we see here if we're to deal with the heart of the problem, which is idolatry, then there needs to be a self-conscious commitment on our part as Christians to the purposeful evangelism and reformation of our community. As we need to be about the Great Commission and evangelism. You know, you think about it, in addition to prayer, there's, there's not much we can personally do about New York City or San Francisco or Chicago or Dallas or Atlanta. We don't live there, but we do live here. And while we should pray for those places and pray for the churches that are ministering in those communities, um, we can do more here. This is where God has called us. This is where we are evangelists and missionaries, if you will. And, and there's a great blessing to that. You know, in many ways, um, LaGrange is still small enough that we see people, certain people, again and again and again, don't we? Or we see them periodically. You know, many times in a large, large, large city, you, if you meet a person, you may never see them again. And so we, we have, I think, opportunity to do good um, and, and ought to encu encourage our, one another to do good, not hide ourselves from the culture, but to be salt and light in it. Not to run away from the culture, but to engage it and convert it, to win it to Christ. You know, idolatry was so bad in Hezekiah's day. Look at verse 4 again. It says, He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, even the thing that God had commanded to be made. Remember when they were in the wilderness and they were struck by serpents because of their disobedience. And God said, make a bronze serpent, lift it up. Everybody who looks to the serpent will be healed. It was a type of Christ, looking at Christ crucified. But the people had turned that into an idol. And so Hezekiah had to even destroy that. And notice something else that Hezekiah did in attacking idolatry. He went where no other king was willing to go. He took on the high places. We are told in verse 4, he removed the high places. The, that stubborn idolatry that even when we read about other kings who were good kings, faithful kings, they were good kings, but there was always that qualifying phrase. But he didn't deal with the high places. And here comes Hezekiah, 25 years old. And Hezekiah says, we're going to deal with these high places once and for all. Those places were ingrained in their culture by the time Hezekiah became king. It took courage on Hezekiah's part to tear them down. And there are many things that will take courage, many assumptions, many false worldviews, many high places today that will take courage to tear down. Well, I've got to keep moving. And then verses 5 through 8, Hezekiah, we read about his obedience and the victories that were given to him. In verse 5, simply put, he trusted in the Lord. Verse 6, he kept the Lord's commandments, and the Lord gave him victory. A victory over the Philistines and 
also protected him from the Assyrians. Now, we're going to see his faith falter, but I want you to see two things here about Hezekiah's obedience and victory. Number one, he had faith in the Lord, and number two, he demonstrated that faith in his obedience to the commandments of the Lord. This is where you get to the whole issue of Paul and James, right? Some people want to pit Paul against James and James against Paul. Are we saved by grace through faith? Are we saved by faith plus works? We're saved by grace through faith alone, as Paul says. But then James tells you, what is faith? Faith is a trust in God that leads to obedience. And if you don't have the obedience, then you don't have true faith. And notice what the historian is saying about Hezekiah, boys and girls. Hezekiah had faith, and it was a real faith. And we know it was a real faith because he obeyed God. Watch out, we live in the South. Lots of people like to say they're Christians, but if they're not obeying the Lord, listen, we're not the judge. Jesus is the judge. We don't know the secrets of men's hearts. And yes, good men can do some bad things. And, and sometimes even bad men can give, put on enough civic righteousness that you wonder. Uh, maybe they are saved. But nevertheless, is saying it's complicated. And we should leave it in the hands of the Lord to judge human hearts. But if there is a pattern of no obedience to the commandments of God, if there is no pattern of faithfulness, not perfect faithfulness, but purposeful faithfulness. That is the vector of their life is obedience. Then you have a person who you can be confident has faith in God. If there is a, a vector of disobedience, and Paul says some of these things come to light after the fact, uh, no matter what they professed, then we have reason to think that the faith they professed was spurious. Final thoughts and applications. Number one, Jesus Christ was obedient. He trusted his heavenly Father and he demonstrated and proved it by his works. And his works led him to death, even death on the cross. But if it wasn't for those works, we could not be saved ourselves. And in response to what Jesus Christ has done, we are to exercise faith in him as the Son of God. And we demonstrate that faith by obedience to his commands. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. You know, there are a lot of churches that would never do what we did earlier in this worship service. What we do that other churches won't do. We read the Ten Commandments. You know, there are a lot of churches that think, oh, that's Old Testament. You don't need that. There, there are a lot of Christians that think the Ten Commandments are irrelevant. Uh, friends, that is the, that, those commandments were written by the finger of God in stone to demonstrate permanency. And if you think Jesus somehow nullifies that, you are sadly mistaken because Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit then takes his finger and writes it on your heart. <laughs> he doesn't throw the stones away. He engraves it on your heart. He makes it more permanent. And Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Our church, our families, our state, our nation, our culture needs Jesus Christ to be king. We need to obey him. 
Um, you know, obedience to Jesus Christ is, is not an option. If, if, if we receive Christ, we must receive the whole Christ. We can't say, I'll take Christ as my Savior, but reject him as my Lord. He is Lord and Savior. This is the true Christ. This is the Christ. And, and, and too many times, churches are offering a Christ who will save, but not a Christ who changes you. That's no Christ at all. That's no Savior at all. Jesus Christ, you know, why have we been chosen in Christ, Paul says in Ephesians 1. We've been chosen in Christ for what? For the purpose of glorifying God in holiness. Our election was unto holiness, to be set apart unto God by the way we live and think and speak. One day we'd be glorified with him. We have to recognize the kingship of Jesus Christ, not by just putting his name on our coins. We're saying in the year of the Lord in our constitution, but by obeying his commandments. All of them, all as they're summarized in the, in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is nothing less than what Jesus said is summarized in the two greatest commandments. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. In these two things hang all the law and the prophets. Idolatry is still one of the chief enemies to the people of God. Idolatry of the heart, idolatry in the church, the home, the culture is a threat and must be dealt with by the Spirit of God and the means of grace. But we have a king who is greater than Hezekiah, and he will see to it that this world one day is absolutely purged of all idolatry in the new heavens and in the new earth. Until then, we work for that reformation. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today's word and pray that the Holy Spirit would use it to change our lives and to make us uh, vigilant against idolatry within ourselves, first and foremost, and then also, Lord, to be gracious and winsome reformers of the culture in which we live, that Jesus Christ would be indeed Lord of all. We ask and pray that Jesus would be Lord over every area of our lives. For we pray this in his name. Amen. The night in which Jesus was betrayed, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body, it's broken for you. And at the end of the meal, he took up the cup and said, in this cup is my blood for the remission of sins. We, uh, as idolaters by nature, um, and as those who have been redeemed from that idolatry, but yet not uh, completely have had it eradicated in our lives, we are dependent upon the work of Jesus Christ as symbolized in this meal. So when you take this meal, what you're doing is you're saying, Lord, I'm a sinner, still a sinner, so I'm a child of God, and I need the cross of Christ. I need the work of Christ right now in my life. I need you to help me to grow in grace. I need you to strengthen my faith. I need you to help me to put away the bad stuff in my life. And I need you to help me by strengthening the good stuff, the grace that you've given me already. Strengthen that which is within you. Jesus said to one of the seven churches. Uh, and, and, the, and this helps us do this. We, we, we look at ourselves and we see our shortcomings. But we don't stop and we don't have a pity party and we don't just 
look inwardly forever and go down this dark downward spiral of uh, introspection. But when we look up to Christ, after we look at our sin and our self, and, and we look to Jesus Christ, there's God's provision for us. And we put our faith in him. And we recognize that because of Jesus Christ, we are, we are forgiven. The bread and the cup remind us that we're forgiven. And God is essentially putting it in your hand, the forgiveness in your hand. He said, here, here's a token, an evidence of my grace and my love and my forgiveness for you. Eat this, drink this. This is for you. This is to help you and remind you that you are a child of God and that there's no outstanding guilt against you. Jesus has satisfied all the demands of all the commandments that you have broken over your entire lifetime, past, present, and future. And so that we are absolutely justified in his sight. And then he says, eat this. This is bread, strengthens your body, and you get refreshed. You know, boys and girls, you get hungry, right? You get tired when you get hungry. And you get irritable. And you get uh, grouchy. You don't feel like doing anything. Well, God wants to feed you spiritually. We eat the bread, and as we do so, we're feeding on Christ. We're looking beyond the bread to what is symbolized, and that is the person, the work of Christ. And he feeds us, strengthens our soul, gives us the energy we need this week. There are going to be a lot of opportunities for you to get impatient this week. There's going to be a lot of opportunities, a lot of irritations. This is a fallen world. You're going to have a lot of opportunities at work. You're going to have a lot of opportunities at home to sin, (laughs) to, to become angry, to become impatient, to... Uh, not trusting God, to, and, and, and we could talk about that all day, but God says, here, take this, eat this, and, and, and feed on my grace, and fortify yourself for what you've got to do for Jesus Christ this week. Sustain yourself with this grace, just like God sustained Elijah in the wilderness with the bread and the meat that the crows bought. Here, this crow says, you know, here, eat this. Uh, God has sent me to give this to you to strengthen your soul so that you can do the work you have got to do this week. The Great Commission is a huge task. You know, there's about 2.4, 2.5 billion people who, at the most generous estimate, follow Jesus Christ. And there's still still another 5 billion, though, that don't know Christ. So there's a tremendous amount of work to do. And, And I'm saying, and that's at the most generous of estimates of what qualifies as Christians. So there, there is a whole lot of work to do, and you need the strength to do it. And this table will help you do so. Let's pray together. Father, bless us, please, through the word and through this meal. Lord, we don't know all the reasons why you tell us to do something like this every week, but uh, Lord, we trust you. Because sometimes, Lord, you tell your people to do things that seem strange, for the purpose of blessing them. So, Lord, help us as we look at ourselves to look at Christ and to eat and drink this in faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody who's been baptized and has made a public profession of faith and is a member in good standing, uh, you are welcome to join us here. If you've never become a Christian, uh, we would be glad to talk to you. We're going to pass out the bread and the cup uh, together, and then we'll eat and drink uh, together after everybody's been saved.
body of the Lord, broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of him. Jesus Christ poured out for many. Take drink in remembrance of him. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the body and the blood of our Savior. We thank you that you've given him for us, that he is our Passover, that we may eat of his flesh and drink of his blood.